0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host Esha. Today we have Christopher Dilworth here to talk to us about law, the history of law, and legal principles. So how are you doing, Chris? I'm
1: doing great. I'm doing great. How about yourself?
0: good i just was in lugansk for about a month and now i'm back into russia outside of the war zone so it's nice to not worry about i don't know ukrainian <laughs> snipers or whatever no um actually i only got shot at once like there was like at this bridge i was at like i, I swear like yeah but other than that nothing that bad happened
1: it's still kind of bad but <laughs> i'm glad you're okay
0: yeah, I mean, it's worse for people who live there because like I interviewed this man on the bridge and he basically said, oh, yeah, Ukrainian troops like set fire to my brother's house. My brother used to live here and my sister. And and then he's like, oh, yeah, they just set fire to his house and he had to move. And he was so casual about it that people like when you look at his facial expression and it's because so many bad things have happened to him that I guess it's like a, just another thing. Just
1: sort of used to it. I mean, I know like the shelling is very common, you know, occurrence and how, you know, people are able to deal with that. But just getting all the updates has been pretty, um, it's pretty rough for the people in the Donbass region.
0: Indeed. So you used to be a lawyer or are you still a lawyer?
1: Well, I'm still a lawyer. I mean, I still have like my licenses in like uh, two different states and but I kind of my job now is kind of quasi law. I'm not an actual it's not an actual legal position, but kind of is.
0: OK, so I guess to kind of make it fit into the theme of the um, podcast, let's kind of go through the rough history of the American legal profession. Um, <laughs> so what of uh, where do we start? A lot of people don't understand what exactly lawyers do and For me, the best way I would say is a lot of nuance cooking.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, most definitely that.
0: So may I ask you to tell our audience your race? I know it's kind of weird and I'm sorry I have to do this, but just so that people understand the context.
1: No, that's fine. Yeah, I'm uh, Black American or African in America.
0: Yeah, and I feel like a lot of times... Uh, lawyers end up nuanced cooking themselves into having an extremely weird right-wing position with no logical coherence, even though they study logic, right?
1: Well, it's it's because, you know, it's the law or it's how, you know, uh, the legal pedagogy sort of teaches people to be, which is just very, I mean, it's always, it's certainly obviously influenced by, by neoliberalism, but yeah, you get a lot of people who especially like you know in law school you see people who come in with like progressive ideals or you know these very lofty goals like i want to change the world and then they leave because they're jaded because they realize that oh that's not you know the law is not the vehicle for that it's almost the opposite things don't change through the law at all and they people realize that you know through the process of law school and they see that oh this is like a you know trying to turn a you know a boat a large you know cruise ship in a very narrow canal just it's something that changes are very slow and even resistant to, to change
0: yeah i mean a lot of people don't understand like the supreme court is essentially a bulwark against change um a lot of people don't realize like what some of the more uh, what exactly the Supreme Court has done throughout history. Just to bear with me while we go through some old cases. And I know, you know, these. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know it feels like uh, uh, con law again. Yeah. Well, one concept I really liked. It, this is like one of the few good lawyers in this world. It's Vladimir Lenin or Ilyich Ulyanov. Um, he had this really cool um, concept called constitutional illusions. Are what we call a political error when people believe in the existence of a normal, a judicial orderly and legalized in short constitutional system, although it really does not exist. Do you believe our Supreme court is kind of that way?
1: Oh, most definitely. I mean, most, I mean, if you, a lot of the con law concepts are just made out of whole cloth like, you know, they're reverse engineered, like they already have their decision and they come, you know, they back into it from that. So like they'll cite things from like maritime law in the 1500s or something like that. It's like, how like, how does that have anything to do with 2000 and, you know, whatever, you know, or citing things from, you know, hundreds of years back? Like, well, there's no basis in legal history for people having these rights. So... Since they didn't have them back then, they shouldn't have them now. Like none of that, none, none of it really, really makes sense. And we see now with, you know, how the Supreme Court is um, like they're granting cert before things have been decided at all the merits. Um,
0: Can you like explain to the layperson what the concept of granting cert means?
1: Well, granting cert means that the you can sort of streamline the process of a of a of a of a case by getting the Supreme Court to take up that case, look at it, and make the decision, like the ultimate decision on uh, the outcome. And conservatives now, with the majority that they have, have uh, like they're I mean they're using it. They know that they can use it in this in this fashion, so they have gotten you know a lot of things streamlined straight to. The Supreme Court, like gerrymandering, a lot of the um, voting rights stuff, gay marriage, a lot of these, like they get them streamlined straight to the Supreme Court so they can get the decision that they're looking for. So that they're using the Supreme Court in, you know, in order to get the outcomes that the policy or the political outcomes that they want. And, and it's, it's working.
0: Okay, Well, just to kind of go through the brief history of the Supreme Court, there's this case called Hammer Re-Degenhardt. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but I'm just reading this out and I want you to comment on this. At the beginning of the 20th century, U.S. reformers sought to end the practice of child labor. Young children were sent into factories and mines to work long hours for low wages. Aside from the physical demands placed upon children, labor robbed them of a chance to obtain an education. Some states enacted a law to regulate labor, but others ignored these efforts and found competitive advantages in having a cheap supply of labor. Congress finally responded in 1916 when it passed the Keating-Owen Child Labor Act of September 1, 1916. The statute prohibited the use of interstate commerce for goods and materials made with child labor. Congress believed that the Constitution's Commerce Clause permitted it to act to regulate child labor, but the Supreme Court thought differently. In Hammer v. Dagenhart, the court ruled the act unconstitutional based on its decision on a constricted interpretation of the Commerce Clause and an expansive view of the state government's power. The decision provoked Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes to write one of the most significant dissenting opinions in U.S. history. So there's a lot to unpack. So um, maybe can you start with what is the Commerce Clause? Uh,
1: well, the Commerce Clause is basically that the the states have the ability to to regulate uh, interstate commerce, or sort of just basically any basically like allows them to do whatever they want to do. It can be interpreted in so many ways. Like that, it gives Congress the power to do whatever they want, essentially, because anything can sort of be. Characterizes commerce.
0: But then here they claim that, so I've seen weird, app, like really weird laws using the Commerce Clause being passed, but then suddenly when it came time to outlaw child labor, the Supreme Court here decided, hey, the Commerce Clause does not apply here.
1: They, you know, like the, the Supreme Court has this, well, I mean, the, the Supreme Court has always sort of been this right-wing institution, right? And they're always going to support, you know, Big business and you know the capitalist class, and so again, you know they said, "Hey, uh, we want to ensure that we can continue to have labor or uh, exploit you know these workers and have children working at you know all times." And so, this is again another one of those decisions where the Supreme Court just kind of throws out any sort of you know logic. <laughs> or precedent and gives you the surprise. Oh, it doesn't. So now you can't regulate uh, commerce because it applies to this. And you see that throughout history, like all these things that, you know, that the Supreme Court should be able to do something with or have the power over. They'll say, oh, no, our hands are tied. We got to let this go back to the states or, you know, whatever the case may be.
0: Yeah, I mean, this kind of case is sadly 100 years almost 100 years later we're still having the same problem. Uh during uh, about a year ago Neil Katal or Kayal um Obama's attorney at the US Justice Department took up a case where basically people who were child slaves in Africa were arguing that basically they should be able to sue people Nestle and other corporations Nestle, too, yeah. In the U.S. And he literally cited I.G. Farben case, like the Holocaust case. And they still cite this. I was so shocked at the decision where he literally cites the I.G. Farben case and says that is why we should not allow these poor children in Africa to sue in the U.S. And then the Supreme Court sides with them, even though during the questioning, they're a little like they're trying to save face. Do you have any comments about that?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, like (laughs) so, I mean, it's just funny because the Supreme Court will use or, you know, the the American government will will, you know, say these uh, things about China and, you know, saying they have all these, you know, slave labor and all these types of things like that. Right. And then you have people who are suing American companies for child slavery and. The Supreme Court wants to throw that out because, once again, you know they're always in, they're in bed with big business, Um as we've, all, we've seen. Like, you know it was a, it was Alito, who leaked opinions to evan- uh, evangelicals. So, I mean, they're corrupt, obviously, and they don't want to interrupt.
0: Are they corrupt, or are they Kool Aid drinkers? I've always wondered. Like. Corrupt means they don't really believe this crap, but they'll do it for money. And if they're Kool-Aid drinkers, it just means they're doing it because it, it ideologically aligns with them.
1: Well, I think in some ways you have it's both. Right. So like there's Thomas, for example. Right. Right he obviously doesn't believe any of this stuff, but he's also very corrupt, right? I mean, his wife is one of these like QAnon people that believes in all of these, you know, the conspiracy theories, you know, she's been taking um, money, he's been caught, you know, having, being influenced. So I think it's a little bit of both and I don't, it can be, right? I mean, obviously they're, they're ideologically committed to, you know, what they want, but then it's also, hey, We can also be bought, right? We can also be, you know, we can also, you know, be swayed, right? Because they also want to line their pockets as well. So I'm I'm sure that there's, you know, plenty of of both of of those things going on.
2: For a limited time, we're offering a ground floor buy-in of Historically Coins. For a $5 investment, you can yield unlimited tokens in the form of links to our podcast and articles, which you can either spend yourself by listening or reading or distributing to a crypto bro or imperialist bootlicker when you need to devalue their currency online by posting your hedge against their stake of a market. Honestly, I'm a little lost with this stuff, but go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Need more content? Of course you do. So head over to YouTube or Twitch for Lit with Lennon on Mondays at 12 p.m. Eastern and tune in on Sundays at 1230 p.m. Eastern to our call in show, 100 year old bone saw. It is what is to be done.
0: Here's another case for you to comment on. Um, Atkins v. Children's Hospital, 1923. The Supreme Court Ruled that the minimum wage law for women violated the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment because it abridged a citizen's right to freely contract labor. So there's a lot to unpack. So, what exactly is the due process clause?
1: I mean, well, due process is just uh, essentially that you cannot, in you know, the government cannot take any action that would like deprive somebody of like their due process of law right so you 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 have to be given the due processes of the law that like, you can't just be taken to jail so if you're going to have something taken away from you I think it's with life liberty or property you have to have the due process of law so you have to you're allowed to you have a right to have a trial in court you know you're, you have a right to you know an attorney and all these you know the right to remain those these kinds of things so um, yeah you you, you should you have the right to due process that is what it, due process
0: means but how does a minimum wa- wage violate a due process or is this the decision that was kind of an ex-post-facto half-assed justification
1: what was the, what was this case i've never i don't, I don't know if i i know
0: atkins v children's hospital 1923 atkins v children's hospital
1: uh, this one, I don't know much about. I mean, but I think it's obviously, you know, just ju- judicial activism, right? It's just, you know, judges, Supreme Court judges, you know, comforting the comforted, right? The people who are already comfortable comfortable, and um, siding with the powers that be uh, against, you know, the little guy, which I think we're seeing with all the cases that are being brought up and the cases that continue to happen. And that is a pattern throughout Supreme Court
0: history. For me, the Scalia, who died a few years ago, six years ago, I think, um, is one of the most like foremost scholars where a lot of people think he's smart. But the amount of times when he accidentally overruled himself is shocking.
1: <laughs> yeah, just because he's like long winded. People think he's like this smart because, you know, you have you have people who are, you know, supposedly progressives and, you know, are, are left wing, whatever you want to call it, um, and, you know, I respect I respect Scalia because he's intelligent. Right? I respect him. Like, why? There's no there's literally no reason to like you should you should have no respect for this man. If you've read anything that he's written and how reactionary his opinions are, it's just not.
0: I, I mean, you can have reactionary, logically consistent opinions, but he's often accidentally overruled himself.
1: And what what cases were these or what?
0: One of my favorite case was where he kept on citing this guy for the poster for why to use the death penalty. And then he turned out to be innocent. I can't remember which one. Yeah, but his decisions are a hot mess.
1: Yes, Scalia is one of these I mean I, I, I kind of think now you have a lot of the conservative justices that are that are in that tradition. You know, like you have I think Roberts tries to Toe the line a little bit more, but Scalia doesn't.
0: Well, Roberts tries to keep his hands clean, but he, you know, he's doing the behind, you know what I mean? He always tries to look good.
1: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Scalia just doesn't care at all or didn't care. He's dead now. So, um, but he did not try to, you know, sugarcoat. I mean, obviously, he tried to, you know, uh, use terms of art to finagle the opinions to make them adhere to, you know, legal precedents. But he's one of the, I guess he's one of the founders of like originalism, right?
0: What is originalism?
1: Well, it's the idea that we should, that the law should adhere to the original intent of the founding fathers, that it should be all about the intent of the constitution at the time that it was made.
0: They made it to protect those with property from those without. So I guess he's right in that.
1: Oh, of course. Like that's and and that's what that's what they aim to do, right, is that they want to keep things the way that they were, which is property to white, you know, Christian men to have all of the power and everyone else to, you know, the power and the property, everyone else to be subservient Mm -hmm. to that hierarchy and and for everyone to serve that hierarchy so that they can continue to perpetuate the system right and then to have the you know police state protect that power which is why all of the like the the supreme court decisions against like you know or like the qualified immunity cases are always denied at the supreme court and they never take those up
0: what is qualified immunity?
1: Basically, it gives carte blanche to do whatever they want. They're immune from. So basically, when the, the police do something, well, they have immunity because they were doing this in the official capacities of their duties as police officers. So they're immune from consequences. Um, for example, I think it was the Leck case out of like was it the Fifth Circuit where the family <laughs> where the police like chased down some guy who stole a belt from the store and went into someone's house. Um, and was holed up in the house. Right. And the family, I don't think was there at the time. And so the guy was just holed up in the house. They sent SWAT. They sent all these people. They had a standoff with this guy. He was just in the house. He had a, he wasn't armed. He just had, he stole a belt from the store mm-hmm. and, they literally brought a tank in and it was like a three-day standoff or something. They like basically destroyed these people's home.
0: That's unreasonable.
1: Right. They destroyed their home. And then the, 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 the fifth circuit said, well, you know what? Well, they well they sued in order to have the state repay them, right? Because you have the the doctrine of um, well the takings clause, which is if you take someone's property without you know due process, then you have to pay them essentially you know a fair market value for the property. And so they that's what they tried to use, but police were given immunity because they were acting within their official capacity as police officers. so And this, I mean, that's just like the tip of the ice, but there's so many other cases like this. I mean, so many more that are just egregious where, you know, it's the, uh, what is it? I think of the concept, I'm, my mind is jumbled right now, um, where police can take anything that you have if it's tied to, you know, criminal activity. Um, like if you're a drug dealer, they'll take your car.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, I know exactly. Uh, Forfeit, civil asset forfeiture.
1: Yeah, civil asset forfeiture. I mean, that's another one, right? And I think that more value is taken from that every year than all the robberies and all of these things combined where police can just and it's it's just it can just be tangentially related. There was a case that the Supreme Court didn't take up, which is particularly egregious, where, where a woman who was dating a guy. And they only had one car and he used her car to, I believe, sell some drugs or something like that. But they had broken up. They weren't together or anything like that and they were looking for him he had a warrant out for his arrest so they go to the lady and ask her where he he is she's like i don't know and they were like can we search your home she gave them the keys and said hey you guys can check he's not here i'm telling you and so they go to the house Mm -hmm. they are outside of the house and they just say come out right instead of like going in knocking on the door using the key and so then they just, you know, shoot tear gas in the house, what? just shoot tear gas all in the house and then like go and bust the doors down, doors down after like a couple of hours. Turns out no one's in the house. So they've destroyed this woman's house, taken the car, taken the vehicle because it was supposedly a part of the of his criminal activity. And it was the only car that she had. And she's like, hey, this is my car. I bought it. It's in my name. And like, I should obviously have my own car. It's not his, but they allowed the police to take that car because it was a part of some criminal activity. And they also had qualified immunity against, you know, what they did to her house because her house was destroyed from all the tear gas and what they did to it. And again, the police were able to get away with it. And that's, you know, things that people don't really hear about on a day to day basis. You hear about a lot of these things, but police are allowed to just essentially do whatever they want to do. And the Supreme court has blessed that with the, you know, rulings that they've made and then the cases that they continue to deny Sir.
0: Yeah. OK. Um, do the police have a constitutional duty to protect and serve?
1: They do not, actually, which is crazy. Um, people sit this idea that the police are here to protect and serve. But the, the, the Supreme Court has really and actually ruled that there is no constitutional duty. They have no constitutional duty to protect anyone.
0: So what is their duty then if it's not? OK, so in most countries, you think the police is there to protect people from violence and harm. So what is their purpose?
1: To protect property and <laughs> rich people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK.
1: Essentially, that is exactly what it is.
0: Like people claim that Russia is authoritarian, but I have to say is that the police here are a lot nicer like i have not seen like you don't see police like walking everywhere like in the u.s you don't see the police don't have guns here unless they're in the middle of a war zone and even then they're very well behaved and uh not threatening um so it's actually a very different culture here in russia like i don't see like them like like in the u.s you see them like i don't know like hanging out in front of like meters like waiting for the meter to expire and like shooting their radar gun just to like they can give tickets and here they don't I don't see that happening at all. Like they're almost invisible here.
1: See I can't even imagine what that is like because every time I see the police, like every time they get behind me, I get, you know, (laughs) my heart starts beating really fast.
0: Of course you would
1: well I was going to tell you one quick story. I um the reason why I have so much anxiety dealing with the police, I mean obviously because I've had terrible run-ins with them in the past, but one particular time I was in law school and my car, I was in the first year my engine had blew up. So I had to get a new car. So I ended up buying like an old BMW off a guy who was a foreign exchange student, who was going back home. So I bought like, his old BMW off a guy. Right. Um, it wasn't like new or anything like that. But it was a BMW. So the first weekend, I drive it home and I go drive home to go pick up my cousin. So, and I'm in the hood, like I'm from a, you know, I grew up poor. And so, you know, that's where I'm going to go, you know, my family and hang out. So I go and I go pick my cousin up from someplace. Uh, well, actually, on my way there, I get pulled over by a cop. He's having, like, I guess he was having a bad day. And so he gives me a ticket for going like five over the speed limit. Okay. Right. So then, I get into town and I pick my cousin up. I'm going to go drop him off at another one of our family members house. And for some reason he just said to me, he was like, this van right here next to us looks suspicious, like like an FBI van or something. I was like, that's weird, but whatever. And so, and I have on a hoodie, I have on a, a Indiana law hoodie. That's like, you know, my, from my law school that like I'm a lawyer, right? It says it right here on my hoodie. So as I'm pulling up to go drop him off, literally six cop cars four blacked out fed cops and two like city cops pull up <sighs> stop my car and like put guns on us and says get out the car and i'm like what i don't know what's going on right no idea what's going on here and like get out we got to search your vehicle i was like you can't search my vehicle you don't have permission that's a you know uh violation of my uh fourth amendment rights so legal search and seizure uh, or else a legal search i guess they thought i was a drug dealer because I was driving a BMW as a black guy driving a BMW, uh, which was just weird because it wasn't even like in, like a new car or anything like that. But they violated my rights. They just continued to search my vehicle. There was literally nothing in the car because I had just got it. But they searched my car. Nothing was in there. And then they were like, oh, well, you can go. But they were going to, what they pulled me, what they, what they said they initially pulled me over for was that I switched lanes too quickly. Uh, I didn't give like 50 feet or something.
0: Is that even illegal to switch lanes too quickly?
1: idea but you know they make things up all the time so i don't like i don't think that it's a a, i think yeah i don't there may be something on there where like if you are at a stoplight and you can't change lanes in the intersection but i wasn't in the intersection when i changed lanes so i didn't know what they were talking about so yeah they were just basically fishing because they saw you know they saw a black dude in a bmw so i was like okay whatever that was done. And the next day I was going, I was driving back to school, right? I get back in my car, I'm driving out of town. I notice that the sheriff has just been tailing me for like two miles. So I go and stop at a gas station to go get some snacks for the road. He, co- he pulls into the gas station. Um, I hold the door open for this lady and he comes in behind her. Uh, I fill up with some gas, get back on the road. A mile later, he pulls me over for just absolutely no reason, just pulled me over, trying to see what was going on. So this is, I was pulled over three times within a 24 hour period of like after getting this car. And I'm just, you know, so this is like, what happens, like, this is why, you know, I have so much anxiety or black people have so much anxiety when dealing with police, because I mean, we know that we can lose our lives at any moment, you know, dealing with the cops and they get behind you, you know, like there's, especially when you know, you haven't done anything. It's like, Oh, what the hell is going on now? So Yeah, that's just another one of the things we deal with here, which is why I say I can't imagine how they work and the police are somewhere else where they're not constantly harassing people or waiting to pull someone over or trying to give them tickets.
0: Okay, so I had an experience with the Russian police, but it was a good experience. I mean, I know it sounds nuts, but on the... Okay, so they saw that I have an American passport and I'm an American journalist. So if you've seen what American... Quote unquote journalists do with the NED and all this stuff that they F up, like in other countries, it's actually very reasonable for them to be a little suspicious. So when I was on my way to Lugansk, the people at the Lugansk Narodnaya Republic, uh, like they um, basically asked me to come inside, uh, like in the border control. So I went inside, and the first police officer asked me a few questions, like "Where do you work?" And I showed him my articles. And then a second one came, and then he asked me if I wanted tea or coffee, and I said tea. And then he asked me if I wanted it with milk or with lemon. I said lemon. So then he gave me tea. And then by the time, like it, it, by the time, like he got permission from his supervisor, he was like joking with me, and he was like telling me all these jokes. And it was like, not a problem. They basically said that I can't I probably should not tweet out my location because that is like a magnet for Ukrainian fascists to like blow things up. And I said, I won't. And that was about it. Like, I was not scared at all. I was not worried. And so, yeah, it's nice to have a police who's not out there to get you like they're busy, like wanting to get people who are like, I don't know, Ukrainian fascists who want to torture people or whatever. So It's really nice. Like in the U.S., I get scared in New York when they ask me to get stopped and frisked or whatever. Janet, are you there? I am. I am. Do you want to talk about how the police brutalized you? Because your story is horrible and you're shorter than me. No offense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I was... And Janet's white.
2: Yes, I'm a white girl, but I'm, I'm also a loud mouth so I get myself in trouble but so I was out with friends and I was actually the designated driver so I did have like two beers early on but then I just thought, okay I'm not gonna drink I'm gonna drive so I stopped drinking so we went to this place that we always went to um and a- along with us was my friend's friend from high school so we're in like our early 20 like 20 20- Two to twenty-five, somewhere around there, and I didn't know this girl, but we went to the place, and it's and it was a place in the town that they grew up, and I guess (laughs) this girl, like some people in the town, didn't really like her. Well, she was slipped a roofie for whatever I don't know what uh, who was who slipped it. We don't know, but she was in the bathroom. She was, you know, in like passing out and I didn't know what was going on. And I know that she didn't take anything, you know, cause I was around her the whole time. And so the EMT has come and I'm still in the bathroom, but it's a small bathroom and I got kind of caught in a corner. And an EMT says to me, just stay in that corner. And I was like, okay. And the other EMT, the lead EMT started yelling at me. And he was like, you need to get out of here. You, you know, you're in our way. And I'm like, okay. I'm like this, but I was like, You know, stupid. I'm like, this dude said I could stay here. You know, like I'm trying to fight with the guy, which is just dumb. I should have just walked away like that is my fault. But he and I'm like, fine. And I just like I scream like F you to him and and like start walking out. He's like, I'm going to call the cops on you. And I'm like, fine, call the cops. So I'm standing at the bar and, and I'm talking to my, my friends, actually the bartender, and I'm talking to him and I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know what I go, but I'm going to have to go down to the hospital because, you know, I'm responsible for her. I got to figure out what was going on. So I, as I'm saying this, someone comes and grabs my shoulder and spins me around like violently. So, of course, my adrenaline's up and I come around with a punch. And it's an officer, but he's not dressed as an officer either. He's, he, he has a blue sweater on and I do see like he has his badge on it, but it's not like he's not in a uniform uniform. It was like kind of colder out. So we had like a sweater on instead of like what you would normally think. So I think in my head, like I realized like I'm going for his head, but I I realized and I kind of dropped the punch. And I mean, you, you got to understand too. I also took a lot of, Self defense and stuff like that in in at that time, so you know that was my reaction to it. So he goes and he's like, he just like grabs me. And he's like, "You're arrested for drunk and disorderly," and I'm like, "I'm not drunk. I'm just disorderly." <laughs> because I'm like, I'm not drunk, but then I'm just sitting, like, as they're pulling me out, they're pulling me. They're they're not letting me just walk out. They I'm in a little like I'm in a mini dress. I'm like five four. I I mean, granted, I probably had twenty extra pounds on me. I was like 140 pounds at the time. You know, I'm not I'm not like a huge person. And nice. he, there's two of them pulling me out. Like, and I go, wait a second. I go, my my pocketbook's behind the bar with my friend behind the bar. Can you get my pocketbook? I don't want to leave here without my pocketbook. Plus, it has my ID in it. Like. So I can prove to you who I am. And they they start giving me crap. No, no, no. And then finally, you know, I wouldn't, I just said, like, it's just dumb that you don't want to get my pocketbook because you do want my ID, right? So they go, one of them goes in and gets the pocketbook. They tell everyone they have to stay in the bar that they can't come out and watch me get arrested. The second we leave the door, one of them pulls out their billy club, starts slapping it on his hand. And saying to me, "If you don't shut up, I'm going to use this on you." And I'm like, "What? Like I'm not like I I I get that like it was a dis- it was an inconvenience for you to get my purse, but I'm like going along with you. I'm not like, you know, like I'm not trying to resist or anything. I'm like, fine, you know, like. And we get to the car, and they bounce my head off the car, putting me in three times on purpose. Wow. And, and so like, this is just like, I mean, I know that I was, you know, like I'm talking about my purse or, you know, like I, I know he was mad cause I punched him. We get to the, we get to the thing. And here I am, this five, four, you know, mini dress, like just sitting there and I talk with my hands. I'm like, do so I'm in front of the, you know, the sergeant that's taking me in and I'm telling him what happened and the cop that I punched comes around it's like downyard like starts screaming at me and then the sergeant's like I think I can handle her <laughs> he's looking at me like yeah I can take her so I'm like Don't worry but it was I mean it was just like just for that like I'm sitting there and I'm worried about a person who was roofied and I get crap because, you know, I shouldn't have yelled at the EMT. I get that. But, you know, I was scared and I was responsible. So the AMT should also understand that people get in there,
1: <laughs> Right. <laughs> that is, that's just ridiculous. I mean, it's like yeah. trying to intimidate you and stuff. Like what? Like.
2: It didn't even need it. Like, it was just so stupid. Like, I don't even know, like, why, like, he they shouldn't have even arrested me. I'm I'm out of the situation. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't even still bothering the EMTs. I was now out of the way and waiting to follow the you know, follow the ambulance in my own car to go to the hospital. Like I I was all ready to do that.
1: And so they just say like how authoritarian You know, police are. I mean, there's nothing more authoritarian, whatever that word means, than you know, police. Because this is how they—they want, or like they're trying to arrest people, like trying to throw someone in jail, or trying to beat someone, and trying to you know get in these like licks. But it's like, for me. I get so upset because I just wish I just like, if you didn't have your badge, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do those things, right? They'd be scared, right? And one of these, I can't remember the book, I think it's called The Rise of the Warrior Cop about how a lot of the, the people who join the police, right? They, they, they do it because um, obviously, you know, the, the power and the power they have over people because they get to carry a gun and they get to like legally just, you know, beat on people and like intimidate and bully them, right? Like you get these cops who just,
0: it's like legalized sadism, for lack of a better word. And what's with the impunity? Like, it seems like they can do whatever they want on video with 100 people watching and nothing happens to them. Do you have any ideas on why they have impunity?
1: So, like, I, from a broader perspective, it's, it's you know, it's imperialism, right? It's, you know, it's the same thing with the, with the military, right? They have... Uh, impunity overseas, right? Uh, or, you know, with things that they do. And, you know, they're valorized and everyone's seen as heroes. And, you know, you can't question anything that's done by the, the U.S. military. And if you do, you know, you're all of these things of, you know, non-patriotic, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, all of that trickles down because the police are seen as, you know, domestic military, right? And they occupy our communities and they do the same thing that the military does overseas. And they're allowed that same impunity, right, to be able to do whatever they want to do because they're also seen as, you know, these heroes above the law who can do no wrong because they are supposedly protecting and serving. People actually think that the police are protecting them every day like they they think without the police everything would just fall apart
0: protecting them from whom like that's the thing is that unless it's like a really bad war zone you don't need that much protection
1: Well, people think that the, that crime is through the roof, right? They think crime is just worse than it's ever been and they think that, the, you know, especially with all the crime shows and the, all these things, people will think that someone's going to rob them, like someone's just going to come and do a home invasion when like the, the chances of that happening are very, very low. Anytime, most of the time people get robbed. I mean, this is like common sense. It's because of someone you know. Like you're not just going to go and rob a random house typically, right? Because you don't even know what's in there. You don't know what's valuable. You're going to go rob a place if you You know that the value, what they have in there and what the value is, because otherwise it's just stupid. There may be nothing in there and you just rob the place for no reason and put yourself in risk of going to jail or, you know, getting shot. Right. So if you know the people who are there or who live there, you know, they're not home, you know what they have. That's going to be the, you know, the reason why you go and rob a place or the the media pushes this idea that, you know, crime is through the roof. And it's, you know, also that they can continue to, you know, fill the coffers of the, um, you know, local police budgets where if you look at any city in any state, the majority of the budget, where does it go? To the police, right? They get they're getting all these toys. They're getting new cars, new hummers, new all this stuff, they're hiring more and more police, but they don't, they're not doing anything. Like for here in Indianapolis, police solve like 30% of murders or something like that. It's like, that's an F, that's lower than an F. Like Why are, why are they getting rewarded?
0: Are they even trying to solve murders then?
1: <laughs> right. Like, and they're getting rewarded with more and more money. they are more and more people, adding more people to the police force. You can use that money to bolster public services, to help people get on their feet, to help people get jobs, to help people get uh, treatment for, you know, addiction or uh, get mental health treatment, any of those types of things where, where the money would be much more effective in reducing or uh, even just, you know, ameliorating or, or even stopping it before things get started. Um, but, you know, they don't, they don't think like that because, you know, they, the police are, you know, sort of have this godlike. like view from you know the 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 government and then you know regular people or you know reactionaries where you know they're seen as sort of this bulwark for you know and and a lot of it has to do with racism right because they think black people are going to come and get them right they think like oh i gotta go that's why you know you have they move out to the suburbs or any of those places that's away from black people because they're afraid and they think you know uh, if I'm a, if I'm living around black people or any of these type of things, something's gonna happen. Like in our area, people like downtowns are usually a place where property values, you know, are pretty high and people want to live where we are because of the twenty twenty protests. The property values in the downtown area went down because all, none of the white people wanted to live in downtown because of the crime and the riots, right? They were afraid. So everyone moved to the suburbs and all the prices in the suburbs just skyrocketed right and the prices in the in the downtown area kind of either you know they they went up but they didn't go up like the other ones did so really if you were a smart person you could have bought something downtown and just and you could just sit on it and just wait for things to you know kind of relax but a lot of the white folks didn't want to buy downtown because they're afraid right and which is just another you know you have just you know pure racism so
0: Yeah, I mean, racism plays such a big part in American society that people don't even realize how, like, it's so, it almost feels a fish inside of water, like, at how much people think about how big of a part it plays.
1: Yeah, it's like a, it's like foundation, like the basement of a house, right? It's like the foundation, it's, it's there and it's not going anywhere. It's there and you're like, you're living on top of it and it sort of undergirds pretty much every instance of our of our lives every institution um and you know there's really no no you know getting around that
0: oh absolutely and yeah for example how the police define crime it's often sometimes feels like it's defined as like which whatever this race does counter the crime and whatever this race does does not you know what i mean
1: no yeah of course i mean I mean, you see that with, I mean, how the, the disparity in sentencing between, you know, cocaine and, and, and crack, right? Which is just, you know, a uh, cocaine just jazzed up, so to speak, right? Where you have a white defendant can have, you know, five ounces of cocaine and they're going to get, you know, slap on the wrist, but you can have one little gram of crack and. Well, you're getting ten years or whatever it is, right? Because that's seen more as a as a, as a black or a poor drug, right? Poor person's drug, right? And the in the and the cocaine is that's more of a rich person's drug or a party drug. And funny thing is that you have a lot of judges that are doing the cocaine, right? A lot of the rich people are doing the cocaine, so it doesn't benefit them to throw the people in jail who are you know lining their pockets with you know all of that that cash. So yeah.
0: Is there really that much of a difference between, say, Adderall, which is prescribed to almost a lot of law students, and crack? To be honest,
1: no. I mean, the, I mean, it's methamphetamine. Like it's the, the the the. I guess the like the chemical reaction, all of that, the stuff that happens. I mean, there is not a like scientifically not a, like a huge difference, right? Because you do have people who get addicted to these things. Now, I think there's obviously like a less addictive drug, but it is still essentially it's it's
2: it's, it's essentially like
1: cocaine or crack that, I mean or just, that's what it is it's methamphetamine it's, it's just a legal drug and I mean a big part of it is like hey the pharmaceutical industry would rather you be on their drugs than on those drugs right <laughs> so that's how they get to continue subscri- uh, prescribing all of these you know narcotics
2: essentially
0: yeah I, I, and like for me um, another thing is that without the government for example like how does, co- like, cocaine does not grow in nature. You need to industrial process it. Like, how does it get here? Like, where are the supply ships? Like, if the government were to, like, I don't know, get rid of the like, blockade the co- like, it's like they're punishing people for the failure of the government, in my opinion.
1: Well, I mean, the <laughs> government is one of the biggest dealers of, you know, drugs, right? I mean, there was um, Freeway Rick Ross, who was the guy who who took the fall for you know crack uh, being introduced into to like black communities where 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 it was basically the government who pushed him to do it, but you know he talks about how and he did you know I think like you know twenty years in jail or something, um but he talks about like he's like hey listen I don't have planes he was just a black dude from you know the hood in California Los Angeles right and he's just like hey I don't I don't have planes I don't have votes how did all this stuff get over here right. And this all, you know, comes from the CIA funding the Contras and, you know, all of that way back then, which was exposed in what was the what was the book? Um,
0: Gary Webb. He later. I forgot the book.
1: Gary, yeah, His book. Yeah. Well, I have it somewhere. But yeah, Gary Webb, who was the uh, journalist in was it Sacramento, Sacramento, he worked for Sacramento Bee or something like that. I think it yeah. was. Yeah, he exposed all all of and that. And then
0: he died in very mysterious circumstances, is all, all I have to say.
1: Very mysterious, which is just... I mean, well, his life was also destroyed At for, before all of that happened. They destroyed his life. They said that he was a fraud, that he was wrong, that none of this stuff was true, that the government was not funding, was not dealing drugs and not doing all of these things. And then, oh, come to find out Senator in Senator Church's committee that... All of the stuff was true. Everything that he said was true. All public record now that everything, he was totally vindicated. And I think it's, I mean, the thing that's worse about it is that, you know, I don't think none of the, the, his vindication didn't happen so much while he was uh, alive, right? I think that all happened after he died, which under those mysterious circumstances being shot in the back of the head twice, but it being ruled suicide. Who, Who knows?
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is that the even like the entire war on drugs, there's a memo from Nixon staffer where he basically says, that's a great way to get rid of black people and hippies because hippies do this drug and black people do this other. I think opium, I, I might be wrong. So we can, like, it's like killing two birds with one stone. <laughs>
1: Exactly. I mean, they knew what it was about. Right. And they were like, hey, if we can destroy, you know, um, the black community, if we can erode the black community in, in this way, then, hey, let's do it. Right. And that's, I mean, a big part of how, you know, a lot of the Black families have been, you know, destroyed in this country because either, you know, you have people who were strung out on drugs or you had dealers who have been arrested. You know, they talk, you know, like Black fatherhood, a big issue is that most of them have been locked up, right, for, for for petty like drug charges, not even, you know, violent offenses. It's They were dealing drugs and it's because of, you know, economic hardship, right? It all stems, most crime stems out of, you know, your social conditions. And so, you know, people who have these worse off social conditions, they try to find a way in order to, you know, provide and all these types of things. And then you, you know, people who literally had maybe a couple of grams of crack and they end up serving life because you have things like the three strikes law or, you know, the mandatory.
0: What is the three strikes law for people who don't probably live in California?
1: Well, uh, incredibly, incredibly oppressive. But um, essentially, that once you have three strikes, which is any sort of uh, felony, the third time you, you get a life sentence, right? And there are cases where you know uh, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he had two felonies. Um, and they were like for small drug charges or something like that. And the last one, he stole like a toy from the store, from a, from a, from a box store. And they gave him life in prison for like the 20, you get like 20 years to life. I believe it is. And he got like, I think 20 years to prison, which was essentially his life at the time because he, the the last thing that he did was steal like a $8 toy from the store. So I mean, just incredibly
0: like ridiculous. I know this is kind of unrelated, but it's kind of related because Kamala Harris, when she was AG of California, she was like a big proponent of this law. But one case that really sticks out for me where I I don't know the race of this man because I only know the case title. But basically, she argued that this innocent man needed to stay in prison because he filed his paperwork too late.
1: (laughs) I think that goes back to how... People in the legal world. I mean, the thing is, one, like they lose their humanity in a way, right? And they become these like adherents to, like, this is the law or these loopholes or like who, like, or it's some sort of like administrative issue or, oh, so he filed his paperwork release, we should stay in prison for the rest of his life. How awful of a person do you have to be to say, I think this person should stay in prison simply because the paperwork wasn't filed? I mean, people see it as a game, right? They don't see, like, not as a game, but they don't care about the the lives of the human beings. They don't see people who they put in prison as human. They see them as as, as subhuman, right? That's why we have solitary confinement and you have the the conditions in prisons as uh, terrible as they are, because even, you know, your most well-meaning people even your supposedly progressive liberals will be okay with what happens to people in jail because they believe they deserve it. Right. They believe, well, they shouldn't have went to jail or about, you know, whatever it is when they don't realize or they don't understand everything behind why someone has been placed into jail and all the conditions that have led, or even, you know, someone being placed in jail falsely on false charges and false accusations, which, you know, our jails are filled mostly with poor black people and a lot of it is right simply because the system is designed specifically for that and that's why we want to abolish the prison system and prisons in general
0: no no i completely agree i mean in the us it serves absolutely no purpose because the biggest criminals for example dick cheney He's. I mean, they destroyed Iraq. They're not going to be in prison. People who destroy Libya are not going to be in prison. And what you get is just a lot of you get impunity with the biggest criminals and the smaller like, I don't know, stealing like a watch or whatever. dumb thing is small compared to the crime of destroying Iraq.
1: Oh, of course. I mean, the multiple lives of I mean, just innocent lives, I mean, the people who even whistleblow on the things that have happened in Iraq of the, you know, just. Uh, droning you know just innocent folks and you know these people never see the inside of a prison they're actually going to be celebrated people like george bush or even you know these the rich people who steal money from lower class folks right uh, the, the bernie made of the world the only reason why he went to prison is because he stole from rich people right
2: this ends part one of our interview with christopher dilworth
0: Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.